Welcome to the iCode Media Podcast, where we help you become the best eye care provider you can be. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. Today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Millicent Knight. Millie has had a little bit different route in optometry than many of us. After starting out in private practice in Illinois, many years later, she started finding herself being pulled a little bit more away from the patient care side of optometry and more toward the industry side. After working for J&J for many years, she now serves Essilor as the Bryce President of Customer Development. Millie and I had a great time talking about where she sees our profession heading, disruptions in the industry and optometry, and also gives a few of us a little bit of a swift kick in the pants as it comes to taking care of our patients. I'm sure you'll find this conversation that I had with Millie as enjoyable as I had having it with her. If you haven't done so, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. And also, please leave us a rating and review on your particular podcast player. And as always, please help us support those who help support us. unique perspective about optometry from a lot of the rest of it in the fact that you know you started off in private practice and then you switched over to industry so what were the thought processes that put you through making that decision to go into industry versus staying in private practice you know it wasn't an easy thought process as a matter of fact i would say it was probably the hardest decision i've ever made uh, and primarily because i love patient care and I felt like I was pretty good at it. So, um, but the other thing that I thought was really valuable and important throughout my whole clinical career, which is over 25 years, is I always felt that it was important for me to make sure that the companies that I was working with, the products, tools, services that I was utilizing to take care of patients, that I did my own due diligence and investigation into what was their mission? What drives the business? What's important to them? And to also make sure that the products and services were of the caliber that they that I was being told they were. And the only way to know that for sure was to, to be very hands-on with them. So part of that involves sometimes involving my own patients. I used our practice to do in-market research so that new products and tools and services that were going to come out to the masses often uh, went through our practice first so that a small a microcosm of patients could experience them first and provide uh, real-time feedback. So was, that more that like a, was that more like a study type kind of thing that you were doing or more market studies or what kind of? Yeah, they call it, they call it in-market research, um, right. but it's, it's basic, basically study programs and opportunities for the companies and the manufacturers to see firsthand what kind of experience uh, patients might have. Even small things like with the rollout and just making sure that how they envision it, how they envision it is how the patient is going to consume it. Okay. And when you were doing these products, these uh, in in practice product marketing type kind of things. I mean, what were some of the 
big aha moments you had when you were going through some of these products that you're using? Um, sometimes, just uh, one of the, uh, a lot of the times, uh, marketers will be really, and, and I've worked with some companies with some brilliant marketers, uh, but they bring out the information from their vantage point. And sometimes it may not be as clear or as simple or as concise as the consumer might need to have it. And then when you're trying to get adoption from the doctor, you might need to come up with something that's completely different, same material, um, but more of a deep dive into maybe the science behind it for the practitioner. So what's developed for the consumer and even some of the um, staff in the office who are going to be working directly with the patient might need to be different than that information that goes directly to the doctor about the same product. Okay. So so when you were giving this information back to the companies, they were taking this back to the marketing departments and figuring out that it was working completely different perhaps than what they thought it might be working. Yes, exactly. And, it, you know, and, and the one thing that that does is it saves time. It's, it's really an efficiency because it saves time. It saves uh, a lot of money, but it saves a lot of uh, time uh, in launching something that you could, that will be launched with a misstep that could have easily be remedied. Yeah. So when you, when your company now, I mean, you work with us, Laura, and when your company now is looking for offices to to do this type of re- how how does someone get involved in something like that how, do you make does your company make the contact does does the doctor say to the rep hey i'm really interested in doing something like this because you know not a lot of people know about that kind of thing you know it comes two ways um sometimes it's the 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 doctor who might ask and sometimes often it's uh, they might usually ask their salesperson and the salesperson will then ask if there are any opportunities internal to for them to waive for their doctors. And they may say, I've got a uh, Dr. McElroy's office is really great. And I think he really provides some good feedback on some of our products or services. Will there be, would there be an opportunity available to do that? And so we would then, uh, my team, uh, which manages the relationships that we have with eye care professionals in the U.S., would then contact those individuals and maybe interview them. And when we have opportunities to do things like uh, we had a recent think tank, which I think you participated in, um, yep. uh, and we have um, uh, initiatives that are areas that we are either focused on ourselves, feel like we're being disrupted by, and or feel like the industry is being disrupted by. And we love having the perspective of those who deal with these issues on a day-to-day basis from a different vantage point than we deal with them. But we both are, are usually challenged by them, but challenged by them sometimes in the same ways and sometimes in different ways. Um, a case in point would be managed vision care. And I would say that that is disruptive sometimes, some of the changes that occur with that to eye care professionals, but it's also disruptive to us in our lab business. Yeah. What do you think is right now when you talk about managed care and how it affects practices? Where do you think that some of the biggest missteps that practitioners are making with managed care? Uh, I think the number one thing is not really understanding it. 
not understanding how to maximize utilization and maximize the benefits for both the patient as well as the practice. Right. You know, because one of the things that it seems like for us, you know, is, I mean, obviously the managed care plan, the vision plan is wanting you to not utilize their service that much. I mean, it's kind of like a gym. You know, you sign up a gym membership and they're hoping that a whole bunch of people are going to join the gym, but they're not actually going to show up at the gym. And that's kind of the same thing. I sort of feel like the way a vision plan model kind of works. They're hoping they sign up all these lives, but they're not actually going to utilize it because that way they get you to keep their money. Would you say that's a, a very valid analogy or am I off track on that one? No, I think there's, there's probably some uh, some truth to that. That's an interesting analogy. Um, I would expand on that a little bit more and say that uh, for the, um, I know for me as a provider, when I was a provider, uh, the vision plan provided an opportunity to make sure that patients had at least some of the basic care taken care of and an opportunity right. to investigate to see if, in fact, they had some other issues that were more deeply rooted that they may not have been aware of. And you know right. where I'm going with this because this is, of course, an entree to be able to look at those, uh, what the AOA says is probably over 265 diseases that can be detected through the eyes. And sure. also be able to look at some of the pathology um, from an ocular perspective as well that the patient might associate with it being a vision issue, and it, in fact, is not. Yeah. And, you know, I think also the, the education perhaps is, is lacking in not just what's happening with what the plans are educating the, the actual uh, participant in that plan, the, the patient or guest or whatever you want to call them, um, is, you know, they're coming into my office basically saying, well, you know, it, my vision plan pays 100% of everything. I mean, I'm sure that's a common thing you get to hear from a lot of us of us talking about the plan. And and what they also find out is that the 100% of what it does pay is significantly less than what they probably need. Uh, is that a pretty common thing as well, you see, Millie? I do. I do. And unfortunately, I think um, that's something that everybody has to hold hands on. Everybody meaning the eye care professional, the doctor, the staff, and yes, the doctor does have to talk about it, the staff, as well as um, industry. We all need to do a better job of educating the consumer that this is to support your health care needs. It does not necessarily take care of all of your health care needs. Right. And when we have that, those types of conversations, I think that information should be included in whatever brochures or information that's given out to the patient so that it doesn't set up an adversarial relationship between the doctor and the patient. Right. And and also in, in considering too, I think it, you know, we need to start looking for more um, ways to reach out also with those vision plans. I, I honestly don't believe that the biggest challenge is the vision plan telling the patient that they, that it takes care of everything. I think it's a lot of times the benefit manager at that particular place they work that's telling them, Oh, you've got this vision plan. It takes care of everything for you. I think that's where a lot of the miscommunication happens. Yeah, there's, there's, there's probably a lot of truth to that. And then I think sometimes uh, it could also be a lot of times when the patient that uh, hears that they have insurance, they may not, uh, do some of the reading or some of the due diligence that they should do 
so that they know, in fact, what they have. And one of the things that we've tried to do at Essilor is to make sure that our sales team is well-versed. They're about to be trained at the national sales meeting in January. Um, We try and give refreshers as often as we can, but we do a main stage training on how you can best help your partners, meaning the doctors who are servicing the patients, understand and maximize utilization of the benefits so that you don't leave money on the table by prescribing something that you think is in the best interest of the patient, but then not billing the insurance company for it. That's a disservice to the practice, and we want to make sure that, you know, you get what's due to you as well. Right. That's something that um, back early on when Chris first started this podcast, he had um, Jessica Stoffel on, and that's something she's been really helpful for in a lot of the vision source practices is learning, is helping us learn exactly what we are leaving on the table, what we should have coded for, what we probably didn't code for because we didn't know any better. And that's made us more profitable. And at the same time, offered our guests really that quality vision that they were looking for and and actually spending the time to educate those guests as to what they really needed. So that's well, I think one of the, one of the, Ted, one of the biggest things, too, and I didn't always like to do this either, is you kind of want to pass that off to the person who's your billing person or the person who actually talks to the patient about their benefits. And, and it's, it's like one of the things you'd like to take off your plate because you already have so many other things on your plate that you have to do. But the fact of the matter is it needs to be on your plate first so right. that you can help direct the staff as to what are the watch outs, what are the things that I'm going to be prescribing for a lot of individuals who have challenges with, I'm making it up, um, eye fatigue at the end of the day because of all the digital devices that they're engaged with on a regular basis. These are the things that you're going to be needing to watch out because these are the things that most of the patients are coming in complaining about and I'm going to be prescribing X, Y, and Z remedy for those so that those patients chief complaints can be addressed properly, and you need to be on watch out to make sure that you are clicking the boxes next to each of these areas so that our office is getting paid for them. Because the insurance companies are going to charge you for it, whether you collect the money or not. (laughs) Right. Yeah, and that's that's exactly one of the things that I learned a lot from Jessica. I think it was kind of, I'm a little bit slow. I had to take her, her course about three times before I finally got it beat into my head exactly what we were supposed to be doing. But I think one of the other challenges, and and I would like for you to sort of speak to this, you know, there are so many technological improvements that we get through the materials that we get to give to our guests, whether it's contact lenses or glasses or, um, you know, any other type of treatments that we do. And I think optometry has has historically been so scared of being salesy that half the time we're not even doing our job. Um, do you, yeah, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got plenty of time. Go ahead and start on it. <laughs> because that is, I would have to say that is probably one of my number one pet peeves and having visited a lot of doctors in practice. The, one of the reasons that our services and our products are so commoditized right now is because we don't take the time out to talk to the patients every step of the way every part of the examination, we should be talking to them about, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing it. 
And this ladders back up to your chief complaint. You got to draw the analogy of what's in it for that patient and why you're doing it. And we get so good at doing these things because we've been doing it a lot of years that you just roll right through it. But the patient doesn't understand what you're doing when you have the foot lamp out and you're looking at the anterior surface and the posterior surface. And, you know, you, we need to have those conversations with them. And the reason that I need to look in the back of the eye and the reason I need to dilate it to you is because, um, you know, X number of cases of diabetes were detect- detected right in the optometrist exam chair last year. I think it was 300,000 cases, actually. Right. So those are the type of things that resonate for a patient and help them understand why it's important to go back year upon year for their annual eye examination, that that's a, con- a, con- a continuation of care that's as important as any other type of healthcare services that they um, seek. Am I preaching yeah. to the there? <laughs> well, I hope you are. I'll put it that way. I, you know, I feel like, you know, one of the things that we always have been, and, and my team uh, says that I've, I've said it a lot more than once, is I'm not going to ever apologize for the recommendations that I make to our guests for what they need. Um, and I'm also not going to apologize for the expense that it takes to get some of that stuff. Now, if it doesn't fit with our wallet, we've got other choices. They're great choices. They're probably going to be better choices than if they still went somewhere else and got whatever, you know, they were going to be able to get another practice. But, you know, it's going to be maybe a more affordable option, but not exactly the, the top of the line or the best possible vision you can get because of what I recommended, because that was what available, was available at the time. And we've been a big believer in our practice of offering premium eyewear to our guests because we, I want them to see as well as they possibly can see. And I, I tell them that from the, from the beginning. So yeah, you are kind of talking to preaching to the choir, but I, I did fall into the trap very early in my, my career of, of, you know, not, Oh my gosh, well, you know, we got this one thing and I'm almost embarrassed to tell you about it because it's so freaking expensive, you know, and just that thought process that I would have. And I'm glad I was able to get past that because I shouldn't be the one that judges their pocketbook. I should let them judge their pocketbook. Absolutely. And so there's two other things I'd like to talk about, one of which is uh, the fact that we don't promote our practices. We don't promote what we do as optometrists. Um, we are in the most amazing profession there is, and it is the window into the body. And we don't promote that enough. We don't talk about the fact that we have great practices and invite people to come. I, you know, my staff used to joke that I talk to anybody and invite them to the office. Uh, and, I, and I do, because I think we deliver great quality care and I would want the patients to come in. So um, one case was I was climb, mountain climbing uh, in Mexico, an area of Mexico that has mountains. And I met this lady who was actually from the U.S. And we started talking about, uh, it was very sunny out that day, so I started talking about the importance of polarized lenses, UV protection, and, you know, cause she asked me what I did. And I just started, you know, I'm always excited about optometry. So I started talking about all the things that, um, that were important for if you're going to be outside in this kind of environment. And she says, well, you know, I live in Texas. And at the time, I lived in Evanston in Illinois. So right. I gave him my card, and I said, if you're ever coming through the area, come by my office. 
And I want you to know that about six months later, this woman showed up in my office. She had That's a over at O'Hare, which, you know, O'Hare is notorious for issues like that. Yeah. But, and she said she had enough time to catch a cab, come over to the office, get her eye examination, and, and go back to, and catch her plane. And she did it because she said, you know, you talked about these things that were important, and no one else had ever talked to me about those. So basically, this woman goes halfway across the country to see you, and she's probably got somebody within five miles of where she lived that could have done the same job, but because they weren't passionate about their, their what they do or how they take care of people, you ended up with a great patient. And, and a $700 sale. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny um, how we, we, we almost talk ourselves out of, of greatness a lot of times. I think it's, that's sort of the way I look at it. You know, with with um, your role that you have with Essilor, uh, is your, uh, your title Senior Vice President, correct, of Professional yes. Affairs? Uh, of Customer Development, actually. So okay. it's a little bit more uh, broad-based than – it does include professional relations uh, and professional relations across the U.S., but it also includes eye care professional training and sales training. And one of the things I'm passionate about is making sure that the messaging is consistent between the sales rep that's coming into your office and any educational resources that you consume from us. So by putting us all under the same team, we can kind of manage that a little bit better. Uh, we also manage the relationships with schools and making sure that students have the support that they need while they're students, that they have a chance. We have a special, um, I'm going to call it a sampling program program. Um, but it's basically an opportunity while their eyes are under duress to be able to try our eyes and lens, which is a really great protection for eye fatigue and eye strain. And uh, they can utilize the technology while they're still students. Uh, we support any of their practice management initiatives. Um, we also support the staff and faculty and uh, deans and presidents and making sure that they're aware of new technology that comes out. Um, and all of that falls under my team. I also serve on the leadership team, and uh, as the face and voice, I guess, of optometry in being able to ensure that whatever decisions we make, first of all, stay centered around our mission of improving lives by improving sight, but that they also are sensitive and resonate and will resonate for the eye care professionals that we're going to be servicing. So when you guys um, sit around in your leadership team meetings, what is sort of the prevailing um, thing there? Is it more mission-based? Is it more core value-based? Or is it more vision-based when you're, when you're making your decisions? It's all three of those things. Plus, the reality is, is this is a publicly traded company, and so it also has to be business-based. And right. just... And and, and I don't think that's any different than anyone who owns a, a practice because you can have the best mission in the world, but if you can't keep your doors open, it really doesn't matter. So part of that is the delicate balance of I know what the business needs to generate and needs to make and do in order to satisfy shareholders and to stay viable in this industry that continually changes. But I also know the sensitivities of the optometrist and the type of support the optometrist needs uh, in order for us to be a good partner. And it it's sometimes feels like I'm on a tightrope at times. 
Um, but I'm, you know, I'm passionate about making sure that uh, that we do right by optometry, and and that optometry understands that at the same token, we have to be good partners with our industry. You can't just take their support and then um, not want to work with them and understand that they are also a business. They are not optometrists. Uh, Essilor and other companies like Essilor are manufacturers. They are a business. And they can't really help us with our initiatives if they don't stay in business. Yeah. So what what if if you're looking at it from the standpoint of your direct leadership within Essilor, what would you say probably is your most important decision as it pertains to what you're doing with Essilor? Just making sure that when we are making business decisions and uh, let's say it's an acquisition and it feels like it's a great acquisition that perhaps put us, puts us in a good position to avoid any disruption to our business. We then have to think about it from the standpoint of what is that acquisition going to do to the relationship that we have with optometry, how will it help optometry or or optician for that matter, um, and or will it hurt? And sometimes I that's top of mind for me, where it may not necessarily be top of mind because they uh, the, the other business people uh, sitting at the table are thinking about it from a different vantage point, and that's why it's so critical to have all of those different mindsets sitting at the table so that we can collectively make the best decision. And that's the one thing that I will say um, that I, I really give kudos to us for for is that most other companies don't have a person like me sitting at the table. Right. Because they're yeah, trying to do the You know, when we're looking at some of the some of the really great companies that I feel like that work well with our profession, Essilor included, it, it does have it. It seems like those that have optometrists in a leadership role do have a much, much greater idea of what we're going through on a daily basis. They also tend to be better partners with us, I guess you'd say. Not saying that those that don't have that aren't great partners, but it's just I guess there's just that you sort of know what you know and you don't know what you don't know kind of thing. And uh, it is really nice having someone that's one of our own that we can go to when we have a challenge and talk to, to that company about what our challenges are that we're facing. You know, and sometimes we still have to make a decision that I, I may not be 100% aligned with, and but it's still best for the company. And then, so then when that happens, I have to shift into a different gear and then look at how do we find a way to help bring the profession along. So, and you know, some examples are, when things like telehealth started to surface first, we all had sort of a visceral reaction to that, just like I can actually remember when we had a visceral reaction to vision plans coming. Uh, but, you know, they don't go away. But what you have right. to do is get out in front of them and try and get your arms around them so that you can help lead and direct how they influence what you do. And I think that's with most disruption that comes out um, I think I don't know. It's something about our nature. Maybe all healthcare providers are this way, but we tend to not like to see change happen. Um, mm -hmm. But by not acknowledging it, does not stop it from happening. 
but it, if we don't acknowledge it sooner so that we can help lead and direct it in some ways, um, it, it disadvantages us. So I, I happen to be one of these people who likes to get out in front of things and try and see how I can direct and manage it so that I can utilize it to better run my business, be more efficient, and take better care of my patients. So how do you, how do you start figuring out which disruptive technology or disruptive force that's happening in, your, in our profession is the one that we need to be getting behind versus which are the ones that we need to be going, oh, I don't necessarily think this is a great idea. You know, a lot of it is just doing some due diligence. You know, instead of just saying no, maybe looking at the what ifs around it, almost like the the, the legal mind does. You know, you have to look at um, what are some potential opportunities if this was directed the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, you can look at even um, online, and we don't. Eslor doesn't have an official position on um, some of these things. I'm, I'm talking about this from a clinical perspective and also from the perspective of a practice that entertained a lot of um, externs. And I would ask a lot of the students, what do you feel is going to be one of your biggest challenges uh, when you finish school? And to my surprise, hey, do you see me now? <laughs> yeah, I do. Hey, there you are. <laughs> Um, I'll stop talking to the phone now. I'll start talking to you on the screen. <laughs> to my surprise, um, I was expecting them to say something like, you know, I'm really challenged by, you know, getting into business or getting, you know, getting into um, some of the science or technology. But instead, they were challenged by logistically, how do I actually, having been in school until I'm, you know, 27, 28, 29 years old, how do I then navigate the rest of my life and integrate what I want to be able to do professionally? And this happened a lot with women. And then also honor what I feel are obligations to, to and, and a desire to want to be a mother. And sometimes the responsibility of even helping with um, parents that are more elderly. And how do I balance all of those things? And so I, I, I think about things like, you know, online technologies being a, perhaps a conduit that as a, if I were still in practice, I might be able to utilize in my practice to rather than have that young practitioner who's sharp, smart, wants to stay engaged with the profession, go on maternity leave and then perhaps end up staying out for some extended number of years and then trying to find an entryway back into the profession, I would rather engage that individual as part of a remote practice so that uh, those patients who want to consume their eye care through something that's more remote, that's not face-to-face, at least in part, that they would have the opportunity to visit my practice through that vehicle. So that way, I am meeting people where they are instead of expecting them to meet me where I am. Right. Does that make sense? It and then that way, it also keeps that young practitioner, male or female, because men are, young men are the same way. They want to be involved in their families. They want yeah. to escape. They're not old school like we worked, you know, six and seven days a week, um, you know, managing a practice. They want to have a life, too, and they want to balance it. So, um, but we can still take control of that. Those individuals can be my employees. They just happen to work remote. Right. An example. 
Yeah, one of the things I also see for telemedicine that's really a big plus, especially for someone like me. I mean, I'm in, I'm not in the middle of nowhere, but I can see it from here. You know, <laughs> and part of the challenge is there are a lot of practices in these rural areas that are just going to die on the vine because nobody wants to come to rural America and practice, which is a real tragedy because I got to be honest with you, if you're really going to make a really wonderful living, this is a great place to do it. I mean, there's just oh, yeah. the, the competition is so much smaller. And there's a couple of members that I have in Vision Source in our group that they're the only game in town and they do really, really well. And, yeah. you know, yes, it's, you know, you don't have the, well, no, nobody goes to the mall anymore anyway, but you don't have the shopping you know, or the nice restaurants and things like that that are right next door, but it's an hour away. It's not like it's forever away, you know. So where I feel like, though, that telemedicine fits in really well is I can go to some of these practices that literally may just die if no one takes them over. And that's a community now that doesn't have someone taking care of them anymore. So... Yeah, it is a shame. It really is. I mean, and this this practitioner has spent their entire life building this baby up to an adult that's a thriving adult, and now suddenly no one wants them, you know. And so if you can go to that practice and, if, if for nothing else, put in the ability to have those guests taken care of on the most high level you can to that point in telemedicine, and let's say it's something that does require a little bit more actual, you know, true interaction. You can say, well, you know, I'm, I'm only an hour away from where you are. Um, I'm, I'm going to schedule you an appointment tomorrow so we can take a better look at this. Or, you know, there's a lot of things you may be able to tell. There's a specialist that's about an hour and a half away from you. We're going to go ahead and send you to them versus having you come to me because I still think that's the best next step. So you're still taking care of those needs. And I, I think what happens or is going to happen in a lot of small towns is those people are just going to stop going to the doctor. I mean, it, that's what it's going to be. Uh, and I see it a little bit already in some of the rural communities that we have that surround us already. And it's a, it's a real shame. It really is a shame. Um, yeah. Your, your associate could triage that patient, get them to a point where they're, you, you at least know what the uh, tentative diagnosis is then they refer them and say, tomorrow you're going to go and see Dr. McElroy because A, B, and C need to be investigated further. But at least we know kind of what we're dealing with. It A, it saves the patient a lot of time. Um, they have a, a, a working idea as to what needs to take place. And it also makes the office more efficient because that patient comes in and you can get right to work on what their needs are. Right, right. Um I want to shift gears just a little bit because, again, with your leadership role, how are you developing your leadership skills on a regular basis, you know, throughout what you're doing? Um, that's a very good question. Let's see. Um, a lot of it is learning by fire and then just making sure that I read as much as I can. I spend a lot of time reading journals, reading books. Um, I'm just trying to educate myself when I have the opportunity I, I, I like to take courses and even I did that even when I was um, still in practice and trying to scale a business uh, I really wanted to differentiate my traditional practice with uh, a wellness model and I, I remember taking um, 
a five-day course at Kellogg in in Illinois, at part of Northwestern. And they had an executive MBA program, a modified executive MBA program, where you could learn specifically about marketing, which I took because I was looking to um, use a different model of being able to scale what we were doing um, with the practice uh, from a, a wellness perspective. And then I also took a course similar to that in uh, finance for executives. Right. So and just so learn the same language, if you can imagine the type of language that we use in optometry and someone that's a lay person or business person um, trying to understand what SOAP stands for and, you know, things like yeah. that. Well, that's the situation I find myself in with trying to understand uh, some of the um, some of the expressions that they use, uh, some of the acronyms, and just trying to really uh, just understand what they mean or translate them, if you will. Yeah, all this alphabet suit we get into, at, no matter what level of organizational optometry or business or whatever you are, it seems like it's you know it gets crazy a little bit sometimes. You mentioned earlier about a lot of the books and things that you read. Like, who are some of the leadership books that you you follow, authors that you follow? I, I wish I could remember the authors, but often when I uh, will have internal training and as part of internal training. Um, they'll reference a book, and we get a chance to to read those books. Um, we'll also have some. Uh, I want to say one was soar with leadership. Uh, we have an opportunity to talk to people who take big risks with their careers, and uh, some of those individuals. I wish I could. Uh, one's name I think is Eric, uh, and I did a very long last name that I'm. Uh, but this individual was blind. And, oh, Eric Weimar. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I've actually been to several. There, there are a number of people who are big risk takers like that, who unfortunately are uh, blind in one case, blind and also deaf. And um, I've also uh, really uh, used their life in a in a very meaningful way and embraced life in a way that many of us who are can fully see and fully hear um, don't take advantage of every day. So. I, I love getting reminders like that because no matter how difficult my day is, you know, I still have that as an advantage over some of these individuals. Yeah. Millie, if you don't mind, I want you to sort of tell Eric's story because not everybody had an opportunity to get to see him uh, like you and I have. And I would really like for you to sort of just give a, a cliff note version of what his experience has been. Well, I, well, as I re recall, um, he started to lose his vision as a teenager, and it was a, a, a slow process, but uh, a, a very definitive one. And so I think it's actually even harder for people who have been sighted to suddenly lose that vision versus someone who never has a vision. Right. So just going through the, uh, and he takes, he takes you through the emotional challenges. Um, obviously the visual challenges, but just what that does to your entire psyche and how you have to reinvent who you are as an individual and some of the challenges associated with that. And it's not just you, but it's your entire family and everyone that's around you that has to make certain adjustments and it, and it affects and it changes everyone's lives. And you kind of have a, a choice of whether or not you're going to spend the rest of your life feeling sorry for yourself or if you're going to spend the rest of your life maximizing and appreciating 
the the life that you still have and just learning to navigate your life from a different perspective. And he just talked about some wonderful examples uh, for that. I think he, he met a friend as part of his hiking and he started um, doing a lot of mountain climbing and, and hiking and really challenging himself. And he uh, partnered up with a guy who I think has no legs. And right. <laughs> what a combination. <laughs> And uh, they've done some amazing climbs, and I remember him speaking about the the guy was complaining because they had to do part of the climb, and it was getting dark. And he was like, I can't see. It's dark out here. How am I supposed to do this climb? And Eric goes, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah. I think the part that I really like, too, about his friend, he's, you know, he, this guy was also an engineer and had been able to develop prostheses to wear. And when they were getting to places where the climb was a little too tall all he would do is extend the prosthetics so he could be a little bit taller so he could make the climb a little bit easier for himself which i thought was kind of interesting it just shows how creative and how everybody in life has to face some challenges and some disruptions and what we choose to do with it is what separates i'm going to use what may sound like a sexist term the men from the boys I mean, it's just yeah. how you de- how you decide to um, continue with your life, even with the challenges that you. If you're going to focus on the challenges, or you're going to focus on the opportunities, and right. I'm a choose focus on the opportunities kind of person. Many years ago, I was in a meeting with Bill Ham, one of the guys that works with you with y'all at Essilor, and it was um, a number of optometrists in the room. Mike Rothschild was in there. Mick Kling was in there, and Carl. And Katie Spear were in there, April Jasper and David Jasper, and we were all just, uh, we were grilling Bill. Like, I mean, it was it was getting kind of brutal almost at some points. And finally, Carl said, "Hey, Bill, I just want to let you know." He said, "We're not angry about anything that's going on. We're just trying to figure out how we can take those changes that you're doing and be able to survive with it and even thrive moving forward." Because we realized that a lot of people are going to just sit back and play dead from here forward but we realize this is an opportunity for us. So if we can figure out how we can take this challenge that's being faced in our way, we can actually apply that and move forward. And I can remember uh, watching all of a sudden Amir's face, Amir Koshneva's face just lights up at that point. Cause that's, that's exactly what he was saying, thinking the whole time, I'm sure while Carl was saying all this, uh, but it was an amazing moment for everybody. And I think even for Bill, because I, he was getting a little bit on the defensive a couple for a couple of moments. And then when he got that comment, we were all shaking our head. Yeah, that's what we're all thinking too. It suddenly changed that entire meeting. And there were a lot of really nice things that came out of that for all of us. That's, that's, that's a perfect example. And I think that that's in part why some people in our profession do so well and why some people struggle. Right. Do you feel like um, there are other big challenges that are facing our profession right now that we really need to be aware of? I think that often we look for the more obvious uh, challenges and challengers. Uh, I think that we're going to have to broaden that somewhat and start looking at uh, perhaps some people entering this marketplace that are non-traditional. So thinking about entities like Amazon or 
some people, as we've already seen with private equity, but some more non-traditional private equity partners, but people who could potentially change the entire face of who we are and how we represent and take care of our patients. And that's where being vigilant comes in. That's where being um, an active participant with your associations that represent you from a legislative perspective, that's where all of that becomes important because we can't all do it individually, but collectively under an umbrella, we can work hard to make sure that um, whatever comes in out to the field, we still have an opportunity to shape what it looks like for us as business owners and as healthcare professionals, because nobody can do that better. It's interesting that you mentioned Amazon because um, it wasn't terribly long ago that Berkshire Hathaway and Amazon decided that they were going to try and change the way healthcare was being delivered in this country. And, you know, those are the kind of companies that have the deep pockets that could make changes and that are outside of healthcare in general. And, and they're looking at it not from a standpoint of being the practitioner or the patient. They're looking at it for being the people who are paying for that service. So, you know, they, they're obviously having higher and higher amounts they're having to pay to take care of their, their employees. They're trying to get their arms around the fact that their rates are going up on their insurance just like all the rest of us are. And what could they do to possibly make that more affordable for everybody? So, you're right. I think when you start having big business get involved in it from a different way than typically has been in the past, it's just always been insurance has been involved with it. I think that we're going to see a lot of really innovative ways of taking care of patients in the future and payment models and the whole gamut when it comes to healthcare. You know, I think um, that the, the, the good of that is that um, it, it always forces us to learn to be more efficient in our businesses. The bad of that is that often those, as you just pointed out, a lot of those decisions are made without taking into account that part of healing and part of healthcare is centered around trust and a relationship of trust. And that's why, despite all the disruption that's come into the industry, you still have the same patients come into your office year after year. And that's because they know when they walk through their door that you are looking at them from head to toe. Uh, one of the uh, things that um, sort of my mantra in the practice is that the optometrist of the future, and really that's right now, should look at the whole patient while focusing on the eyes. So when the patient walks in the door, I watch them from head to toe. I watch their gait. I watch their speech pattern. I watch how they sit in the chair. And I knew these individuals from year to year. So you can tell if there's something different. And you already have data and information before you even start the examination. That's something that you can't duplicate uh, through a large business model because they're not even taking that into account. So is what you're saying that while technology and everything is all great, it's really the relationship that's a, the most important part there? That's a big part of what takes place because um, part of that relationship and that trust uh, encourages patients to be compliant. If they really don't know you, they don't trust you, often those are the opportunities that you can provide um, you know, from a database, what's the best solution to 
their perceived problem. But if they don't, if they're not compliant with it, it hasn't really helped them. And part of that compliance is assisted by coming from someone that they know and trust is looking out for right. their best interest. Right. Okay. So uh, what else do you want to talk about today? <laughs> is there anything that's burning on your mind that you want to really get out right now, Millie? I mean, what is... Um, I don't know. Let's see. Um, I like, you know, I like periodically having the opportunity to do think tanks. And I hope that I am able to continue to fight for, and I do have to say fight for, because everyone feels like something that they want to do in their departments is important. And there's only a finite amount of resources. But right. I really like to be able to talk to um, eye care professionals and find out what are some of the the challenges that you have on a daily basis? What are the, some of the things that we need to know to better develop tools and services and products and innovation that can support you now and in the future in your practices? That's what always stays top of mind for me. So what are some of the top, I mean, you've done, um, you've done managed care, you've done private equity. What are some other topics that you'd really like to see fleshed out in a think tank? If you don't mind giving away those secrets, I mean, I don't want any, all the other industry thinking, oh, I'll do that next. But I mean, you know, <laughs> what are some of the, what are the, some of the topics you wouldn't mind sharing with, with the audience about you'd like to hear? You know, I think I'd like to look a little bit more at um, digital technologies. I'd like to look a bit uh, more at, uh, technologies of the future, uh, artificial intelligence. Um, we're utilizing a lot of that in our practices right now, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, right. And I'd like to, to be able to look at ways in which, again, we can get all of these technologies and innovations to work for us. Not that would be really way. cool. Yeah, that would be really cool. Um, you know, it's, it's I'm a, I'm kind of a technological geek uh, when it comes to having all these new gadgets and things, and it's, it, sometimes it's hard to decide: is it the right gadget or is it just a twenty-six thousand dollar boat anchor? You know, and <laughs> I've, I've unfortunately got a couple of those that I've had in my career. You know, yeah. but um, you that's part of the challenge you get with you you're talking about taking risks earlier. I mean, we sort of have to take risks financially. We take risks with you know our our time and what we're really involved in and I'm so happy that someone like you is willing to take some of these risks to get people's opinions because sometimes I I bet you and I'm well, I was that way when we were in the think tank at the uh, managed care part of it some people don't exactly have the exact same opinion that we do and it's really refreshing to hear what they have to say not so I can say well you're wrong but just to say well, I haven't quite thought of it that way before. It is, and it's, it's not often that you have an environment where you get the chance to hear a lot of really sound minds talk about um, why they feel a certain way and how they came to that conclusion. And like you said, to be able to try it on to see, you know, how does that feel for me? Uh, but if we don't have those kind of conversations, you can believe uh, big business and other industries are having those conversations about us we need to be having those conversations too. Right. You're right. You're definitely right. Well, Millie, I want to uh, really thank you for being here with me. Um, and um, I, I know our audience is really appreciative of this, and I can't wait to do this again sometime soon. Thank you. 
Thank you for asking me and inviting me. It was my pleasure.